Our sermon this morning is from Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 30. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles or follow along on the liturgy that we've provided for you at jamesrivercommunitychurch.com. So far in Luke chapter 13, we've seen a number of things uh, transpire. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, uh, people come to Jesus and they say, uh, what are we to make, Jesus, of, of persecution and natural disasters and suffering that happens? Do, are we to assume that people who suffer in these ways are worse sinners than us? And Jesus' response is, uh, those people who suffered from persecution or from natural disasters, they didn't suffer because they are worse sinners than you. You're no better than them. In fact, you should turn from your sin lest you experience the same fate that they that they have. Verses 6 through 9 uh, is a parable of the barren fig tree. It's Jesus uh, telling the people there to, to bear the Holy Spirit's fruit of repentance uh, in your life. Because if you don't, then you will experience God's terrible judgment. Verses 10 through 17, you've got a woman with a disabling spirit, and you've got a ruler of the synagogue. One is healed, and the other is rebuked. And you might expect Jesus to be terribly impressed with the ruler and, and dismissive of the woman. But in fact, it's the exact opposite that, that happens. Jesus draws near to the poor, sick woman and heals her. And Jesus confronts and rebukes the wealthy ruler. Verses 18 through 21, uh, Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God, how it starts small, it has humble beginnings with a crucified Savior, uh, but it grows big, and it grows massive and glorious. And so the, the implication is to be faithful in the small and ordinary things and trust that God will work extraordinarily through them. And so the whole chapter seems to be setting up this contrast, right? It seems to be setting up on the one hand, uh, self-righteous. I'm, I'm better than everyone else. I'm really impressed with myself. And I think that everyone else should be impressed with me too, right? That's kind of the one hand. And the other hand is the poor, sick, sinners, lowly, people who need God's help. And our text today uh, in verses 22 to 30, uh, continues to explore that same, uh, that, that same tension, that same contrast, right? Jesus fields a question about who will be saved, or more specifically, uh, how many will be saved. Uh, and, and then he uses it to teach about the nature of the, the, the nature of salvation, the nature of the kingdom of God, and to stress the reality that, um, it's, that the kingdom of God's not going to be populated by the best. Uh, and, and the people who are impressed with themselves and people who think that everyone else should be impressed with them. Rather, the kingdom of God is going to be populated by the humble and the lowly, uh, right? That the first will be last and the last will be first. So let's read through Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 30 together. And then let's spend a few minutes considering what it, what it means for us. Starting in verse 22, we see... He, Jesus, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, many will seek to enter, but will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. 
And then you'll begin to say, but we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and they'll recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first. And some are first who will be last. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing on these next few minutes. We pray that you would bless the reading of your word. We pray that you would help us to hear and receive your word and to respond to it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so starting in verse 22. He went on his way through the towns and the villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. The Gospel of Luke makes that painfully clear, right? Over and over and over again, we see that Jesus is going toward Jerusalem. Uh, at the Transfiguration in Luke 9, uh, Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah about his death, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Chapter 9, verse 31. Later, chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. 1333. It cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. 1711. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. 1831. We're going to go up to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. 1911. He was near to Jerusalem. 1928. He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. All throughout the Gospel of Luke, we see that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. The author is intentionally emphasizing it over and over again. He's trying to communicate a large, overarching trajectory of the book. That is where Jesus is going. That is where Jesus is headed. He's going there on purpose. He's not just wandering around aimlessly. He's not just going wherever the wind happens to be blowing or whatever happens to be downhill at the moment. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's been planning it. He's been working toward it his entire life. In fact, He's been planning it and working toward it for all of eternity. Jesus came to go to Jerusalem. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to give his life as a sacrifice for sin so that his people that he loved who have wandered away from God and had rebelled against God and had been separated from God and have evoked the terrible wrath of God, right? Those people, uh, they need a savior. They need someone to stand in their place. They need someone to be punished instead of them. They need someone to satisfy the wrath of God and to impute his perfect righteousness to them, right? So that they could be reconciled to God. Jesus knew that and that's why he came and that was his soul purpose. He was a man on a mission journeying toward Jerusalem. And then in verse 23, and then someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few, right? Jesus, what are my chances 
of, of getting in. How exclusive of a club is this salvation that we're talking about? Eternal life, the kingdom of God. How many people are going to make it, right? Right? Is it, uh, is it all of us? Is it, is it like universalism teaches? Is every single person going to be saved regardless of what you do or don't do or believe or don't believe? Or are we all going to eventually get swept up into this, this universal wave of salvation? If so, great. But if not, how many are going to be saved, Jesus? Right? What, what are the percent? What are my chances? What do the percentages look like? Right? Is it, uh, you know, is it like, is it like making it into the into the NBA, where you know, you know, to make it onto your high school basketball team, they take twenty kids. So you got to be one of the best twenty players in your high school, which you know, depending on the size of your high school, is maybe uh, quite an accomplishment. But then to go play in college, it's like you know, two percent. The top 2% of high school athletes end up playing uh, in college. So you go from being the top 20 in your high school to being the top 2% in the nation. And then of those college athletes, only the top 1% end up making it to the NBA. Right? So, so the NBA is the, the, the you, you take all of the best athletes and then you take the very best of those and you discard all the rest. And then you take that group and then you take the very best of those and then you discard all the rest. And that is who makes it to the NBA. And so this guy's saying, is that what salvation is like? Right? Should, should I, should I be worried about how competitive it is or what my chances are of making it in to the kingdom? The kingdom of God, or is it more like, uh, is it more like a pickup game at the YMCA, where there's eleven guys on the on the floor, and we need we need ten to play a game, so I just have to be one of the first ten out of eleven guys to make a shot, and then I get to play on uh, to play this game, and, and even if I miss, then I just sit out and I just I play the next game, right? So he's, how competitive is this? What what are my odds of making it into the kingdom of heaven? What are my odds of experiencing salvation? Are, are the people that are, are the number of people that are going to be saved, is it many? Is it a lot? Or is it few? Is it very, very little? And Jesus' response, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, many will seek to enter and will not be able. So Jesus' response, yes, you're right. The, the number of people that will be saved is few. Very few will enter into salvation, not many. The door is narrow and not wide. But it's few and it's narrow for reasons other than what you might be, be thinking. See, kind of baked into the guy's question is the assumption that if the door is wide and broad, then great, no problem. I'll just walk right through it. Right. I'll, I'll, you know, it's not, not really, it's not too difficult to attain to no biggie. I'll just walk right through. But if the door is narrow and if there are only a few people that can go through it, then I need to be the best. I need to be the best. I need to work hard and be one of those few elite green beret, best of the best people that can walk through the narrow door of salvation. So I better show up early. I better stay late. I better be better than all my peers. I better be a standout so that I'm the obvious choice to make sure that I get picked, to make sure that I get saved, right? That's a narrow door, a door that, a door that's just big enough to let through the best of the best, the most righteous, the most moral, the people with the most religious accomplishments. That's a narrow door. But that's not the kind of narrow door that Jesus is talking about, right? Um, Jesus, Jesus' narrow door, uh, is not 
uh, only wide enough for a select few that can enter into it. Right? Uh, in, in a sense, salvation is wide open, so wide that anyone and everyone can enter into it. But at the exact same time, it's incredibly narrow so that only very few people will enter into it. Right? Many seek to enter through it, but once they realize what it takes to enter through it, very few end up doing so. So there's, there's a sense in which uh, salvation in Christ is terribly easy. It is inclusive. It is open to all. Anyone is welcome to come, right? You don't have to do anything. You don't have to bring anything. You don't have to offer anything. There's no price of admission. You don't have to be from a certain uh, class. You don't have to speak a certain language. You don't have to go on a pilgrimage to a, a holy site. Trusting in Christ and becoming a Christian and being saved by Jesus is profoundly easy. It's the, it's the easiest thing that a person can do. And yet, at the exact same time, it's the hardest thing that a person can do. Not only is Christianity inclusive and welcomes anyone and everyone who will come, but it's also exclusive in that you can only be saved through Jesus. And what it takes to be saved through Jesus, frankly, is kind of difficult and it's kind of um, counterintuitive to what we might instinctively want to do. To, to come to Jesus... It asks nothing of you, but it does require that you come to the end of yourself. It does require that you do the most difficult thing that any person can be asked to do, and that is to admit that you're not good enough, to admit that you can't do it, admit that you need help, to, to get to the place where you can ask another person who is not you to help you. And to accomplish something for you that you are incapable of accomplishing yourself. That's the hardest thing that any person could ever be asked to do. And yet, that's exactly what coming to faith in Christ is. It's, it's taking a long look at your life and realizing and acknowledging that I have made a total mess of things. I've rebelled against God. I've run far from Him. I love, I've loved myself more than I loved God. I've trusted myself more than I trusted God. I'm not worthy of salvation. I am worthy of judgment. And I need a Savior. I need Jesus to save me. I need Jesus' righteousness credited to my account, right? That's an incredibly difficult realization for a human being to come to. It's an incredibly difficult acknowledgement to make. And that is why the door of salvation is so narrow. Not because it asks for some grandiose accomplishment that's beyond our capacity, but rather because it asks so little. And because it asks us to acknowledge that we have so little. And because we have built our lives around never, ever, ever admitting that we don't have what it, what it takes. The door to destruction is wide and many people enter through it. It's the door of self. It's the door of, of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency and self-actualization and self-expression and self-trust and self-esteem and self-love, right? It's the door of listen to yourself and live for yourself and be yourself, right? That The door takes many forms, but it's all the same route. It's the door of self. It's the door of self-ism. 
right? The opposite of the gospel, selfism. I love myself more than I love God. I trust myself more than I trust God. That's the, that's the wide door to destruction. The narrow door to salvation is not the door of self. It's the door of self-denial. Right? It's, it's the door that says, I'm not, I'm not going to trust in my own righteousness. I'm not going to uh, try and make a name for myself. I'm not going to believe that I'm good enough on my own. I'm not going to try to build the life that I want where I'm at the center of it. And instead, I am going to start living my life with Jesus at the center of it. The biblical concept of self-denial... Uh, doesn't, uh, we, we like to think that self-denial just means, okay, uh, tell me what to cut out of my life. Tell me what to deny myself. Uh, tell me what things I should deny myself and I'll do it. No problem. That's what self-denial is. But, but the biblical concept of self-denial doesn't begin and end with simply cutting comforts or gadgets or, or toys or junk food or whatever else out of your, of your life. Self-denial often includes those things, but, but it, it's, it's bigger than that. It doesn't begin and end with simply, it's with simply denying ourselves things. Self-denial is a matter of actually denying yourself and disowning yourself and turning away from the idol of self and the idol of self-centeredness and self-love and self-trust. So that's Jesus' first point, right? Uh, will those who are saved be few? Yes. Right. The door is narrow. Few people enter through it. But then he continues, right? It's not just that the door is narrow and that it calls for self-denial and that it calls for repentance and faith. It's also uh, that there's a very narrow window in which we can enter through it. Verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Jesus is saying that, there, that, that time is a limited, non-renewable resource. We don't have uh, an endless amount of time in which to respond to the gospel. There's a specific point in time when you will stand before God and give an account for how you lived your life and give an account for how you responded to the gospel. And at that point... It will be too late. The time to respond is now. The window in which you can respond is now. And at some point, that window will be closed. Ironically, we have a tendency to live our lives in this terribly short-sighted way. Think about this. You have all of eternity to do anything and everything that you have ever wanted to do. Trillions and trillions of years. You can travel wherever you want. You can do whatever you want. You can spend your time however you want. You can experience anything that you would like to experience. You can relax. You can enjoy. You can recreate. All of those things are still going to be at your disposal for all of eternity in heaven. Our window for oppor our window of opportunity for experiencing joy and pleasure is infinite. So there's no rush to get it all in now. But 
you have a very narrow window in which you can respond to the gospel. A very narrow window in which you can live for God and invest in eternity. You've got about 80 years where you can respond to the gospel and where you can invest in eternity and live for God. So out of, out of trillions and trillions of years, you have a few short decades where you can repent of sin and trust in Christ and live for Christ and, and leverage your resources for the sake of eternity and for the sake of other people who are going to live on into eternity with you. Your possessions are not going to live forever. Your house is not going to live forever. Your car is not going to live forever. People are going to live forever. And yet here's the irony about how so many of us spend our time and spend our lives we neglect the things that are most urgent, things like responding to God, responding to the gospel, practicing spiritual disciplines, proclaiming the gospel to people around us who desperately need to hear it. We have a very short window of time to do these things, and after that, the opportunity is gone. It is emphatically urgent, and yet we neglect them. And at the exact same time, we throw ourselves into things that we are going to have all of eternity to do, right? Right? Comforts and luxuries and watching movies and TV or owning the newest gadgets and the new toys. We, we neglect the things that are urgent and that can only be done in this life. And we allow our time to be monopolized by things that are, frankly, not urgent at all. And that we will have all of eternity to catch up on if we, if we want to. Because the, the reality is... A time is coming when the master of the house will get up and he will close the door. And once that door is closed, it will be too late to enter through it. If you're already in, you're in forever. And if you're not in yet, then you're out forever. And so Jesus' point is respond to the gospel now while you still can. Invest in eternity now while you still can. In verse 26, then you'll begin to say, but we ate and we drank in your presence and, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Right? So they're saying, Jesus, let us in. Of course you know us. And of course we know you. We've, we've engaged in all kinds of religious activity together. We were, we were leaders in your church. Right, we, we read all the right books, we listened to all the right podcasts, we had all the right bumper stickers on our car. Of course you know who we are, Jesus, and of course we know you. And Jesus says, I do not know where you come from. According to Jesus, it's possible to think that you're saved. It's, po it's possible to think that you're a model Christian and that your place in heaven is reserved and that you have nothing to worry about only to find out in the end that you never knew Jesus at all and that he never knew you. Which, of course, raises the question, who are these people that think that they're saved only to find out when they meet God that they are not saved? Who are these people? For starters, we can we can start with who they're not, right? Uh, who, who they're not are people who trusted Christ and were saved and were actually reconciled to God, but then went on to lose 
their salvation. That's not... It's not what's in view here, right? So, and we know that because there's a wealth of passages in scripture that teach that it's not possible to lose your salvation, right? They teach very clearly that when God saves a child, he keeps his child and he never loses them ever. We can also know that because if we turn to a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 7, uh, Jesus kind of uses a few different, like some, some uh, similar wording, but a little bit different and a little bit more uh, revelatory. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Not... Not, I don't know you anymore. Not, I knew you at one time and you were mine and you were genuinely saved, but then you lost your salvation and so I don't know who you are anymore. Jesus says, I never knew you. Not now, not ever. You've never been a part of my flock. So it's not people who were saved and lost their salvation because that's not not possible. Rather, it's people who thought they were saved and then found out that they never were. Because while it's not possible to lose your salvation, it is possible to fake it. It is possible uh, to, to pretend that you're saved or, or even uh, trick yourself into thinking that you're saved when you uh, are, are not. And that's who Jesus is talking about here. Not people who lost their salvation, people who were, were faking it. People whose religious life and their religious experience was built around self. Self-aggrandizing and self-promotion and, and being seen with all the right people, right? Jesus, we ate and drank with you. We were, we were at all the parties with you. We were, we were kind of close with all of the power brokers, right? You taught in our streets. We went out of our way. We cleared a path so that you could come and do ministry. Notice how their objections are all centered around themselves. That's centered around what they did. Right? It's not Jesus let us into your kingdom because uh, we trust you and we hide in you and you are our savior and we cling to you. Right? Instead it's Jesus let us into your kingdom because look at everything we did. Look at how extensive our network is. Look at all the dinner parties and events and appearances that we were, were at. Right? Jesus you have to let us into your kingdom because of all the things that we've done with you and for you over the years. Their entire standing is based on what they bring to the table. And it's not based on God's mercy. Right? Their, their entire religious life is based on how they are seen and experienced by others. I want people to see me in close proximity with Jesus. I want people to think that I'm awesome. I want people to fawn over me. I'm living this very showy life to make sure that people see me and are impressed by me. And Jesus says, if that's you, if you walk with a swagger, if you expect people to, to kiss the ring, if you want everyone to pay homage to you, and if you presume to have absolute certainty that you will have a privileged seat in God's kingdom because of who you are and all that you've accomplished, there's a very real possibility that you will find yourself on the outside looking in. And that Jesus will tell you to depart from him and that he doesn't know you and he doesn't know where you came from. Now there's two quick caveats that I want to that I want to cover just before we, we rush past them. First, I don't 
I don't want to be uh, overly reductive and paint every single person who walks away from the faith with a broad brush. I don't want to say that every single person who uh, identifies as a Christian at some point and then later walks away from the faith, that they are all frauds or that they are that they all um you know were wolves in sheep's clothing or they were deliberately deceiving people that none of them loved god that they all loved themselves more than they loved god and their their relationship with god was a sham i don't think that is the case i think that there are a number of people who walk away from the faith for any number of reasons i don't presume to know what they are i don't presume to know what's in their heart I think it's I think it's certainly possible to be absolutely sincere but but just to be sincerely wrong. So I'm I'm not claiming that everyone who walks away from the faith necessarily looks like these Pharisees and these religious leaders that Jesus is calling out right right here. So that's one caveat. The second caveat is um that it's it's quite possible that that a legitimate bona fide uh, Christian who's trusting in Jesus might hear these words from Jesus and and be alarmed, be unsettled by them. Right? It might it might make you think, how do I know that that's not me? How how can I be sure if if it's if it's not possible to lose your salvation? That's comforting. That's assuring. But if it is possible to fake your salvation, how do I know that I'm not doing that? How do I know that I am not deceiving myself into thinking that I'm saved only to find later that that I'm going to be knocking on the door to God's kingdom and I'm going to be on the outside looking in? How can I have real, genuine assurance of salvation? Well, here's the thing. On the one hand, a text like this is meant to serve as a warning, a very real warning and a very scary warning to the to the prideful and to the self-righteous and to the self-exalting, self-reliant people who identify as Christians. It's meant to be a real warning to these people. But to people who are trusting uh, God, to people who are trusting in the mercy of Christ... Right? This text is not intending to, to cause anxiety and worry and fear and sleepless nights for Christians who love God and trust God and who are well uh, in, intentioned. It's meant to, to be a warning for the self-righteous. It's not meant to, to bludgeon or to be injurious to humble Christians. So that's you. Right? If, if you love God, if you trust God, if you love God more than you love sin, if you trust God more than you trust yourself, then you can take a, take a deep breath. You can relax because uh, this text is not intended to wound you. It's not intended to injure you. It's not intended to cause you to doubt your salvation. In fact, you, you should know that, that the, the path of walking away from the faith, right? That the path of, of walking and, and finding yourself outside of God's kingdom and then knocking on the door and not being let in, that that's a long journey, right? That's not something that happens by accident. And it's not something that happens overnight. It comes from repeatedly over and over leaning into sin and leaning away from repentance. It comes from repeatedly over and over uh, choosing self over God until your heart becomes calloused 
right? Until conviction of sin becomes harder and harder to experience and to come by in your, your life. So these guys in this illustration, uh, they, they purport to be surprised that they're not in God's kingdom, but that doesn't change the fact that it was something that they actively did over a long period of time. So if you, if you love Jesus and if you trust Jesus and if you are not knowingly, intentionally walking away from him or prioritizing yourself above him, then you shouldn't be afraid. You should just keep persevering. You should keep doing what you're doing and trust that Jesus will keep you because he promised that he will. Verse 28, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is outside of the kingdom, knocking on the door, wanting to get let in. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves cast out. So Jesus is painting a picture here. Here's the, here's the Pharisees who spend their lives climbing the corporate ladder, getting famous, getting people to owe them favors. They're, they're, they're a really big deal. And then they go and they meet their maker and they're, they're expecting to have the red carpet rolled out for them. They're expecting to be ushered into the inner circle, but instead the door's closed and it's locked and they're banging on it and they're begging to be let in. And then they look inside and they see all of their heroes, right? All of the greats, all of their forefathers, all of the prophets of old, all of these people that have gone before them and that have loved God and that have trusted God and that have walked with God. And all of these religious leaders assumed that they were kind of in the same uh, stratosphere as those guys. They were walking the same path as those guys. But here are those guys enjoying God's presence in the kingdom of God. And here we are on the outside looking in. And Jesus says, that is a terrible place to be. Marked by weeping, crying, mourning, regret, shame, guilt. And marked by gnashing of teeth, pain, and and anguish, and, and suffering. Jesus is describing the terrible realities of hell. The prophets, the forefathers are inside with God, enjoying his presence forever. This is heaven. And the prideful and the self-righteous are cast out. They're separated from God. They're suffering under his terrible wrath. That's hell. And according to scripture, every single person that has ever lived, every single one of us is going to end up in one of those two places. All of us, me, you, everyone that you know is going to end up either in heaven or in hell. They're either going to end up with God in the kingdom of God, or they're going to end up locked out, separated from God, isolated and alone and weeping and crying and grimacing from the pain of experiencing the wrath of God. And and the deciding factor that determines which of those locations you will spend eternity, right, is is which path you walk down. It's which which door you walk through. You either walk through the wide door of self and self-ism, where you prioritize yourself and you indulge yourself and you gratify yourself and you make much of yourself and it's it's easy and it's downhill right and it's it's the way that the current is flowing and and if you do nothing that's the way the current will take you through this wide door with all of these massive crowds that are also going that way but that door leads to hell 
leads to exclusion from the kingdom of God. It leads to eternal conscious torment as God punishes you with his terrible wrath. Or you can walk through the narrow door. Not the door of self, but the door of self-denial. The door of repentance and faith. The door of turning from your sin and trusting in Christ. The door of trusting in what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And the fact of the matter is, that way is difficult. It's not downhill, it's uphill. Right? It's not with the current, it's against the current. You have to carry your cross and you have to fight and grind every step of the way. And compared to the wide door where there's massive tons of people going through it effortlessly, there's barely anyone going through this narrow door. People don't tend to choose the way of self-denial when there's another path of self-gratification at their disposal. But this narrow door, with few people going through it, this door leads to the kingdom of God. This door leads to eternal life with God under the rule of God. Jesus is saying uh, this, this wide door and this narrow door that I'm talking about is determinative of whether you're going to go to heaven or hell. This isn't some fairy tale, right? This isn't some outlandish, fantastic story that you hear at bedtime that's not real. This isn't academia, right? It's not some sterile subject that you study that has no bearing on your life. This is real life. This is what is going to happen when you die and when you stand before God. How you respond to God and how you respond to the gospel and whether you trust in Christ as your savior or not, there are real implications for your life and for your eternity. It is, it's, it's painfully, it's painfully relevant. If you, if you read books, uh, uh, if you read books about church ministry and about, uh, church growth and, and ministry philosophy, there's going to be a lot of talk about relevance, right? You want your church to be relevant. You want your preaching to be relevant. You want your programs to be relevant. And more often than not, what they're referring to is, uh, make them flashy, make them cool, make them fun. Right, uh, play movie clips during your sermon. Have a have a smoke machine on stage so that it seems cool. Let me submit to you that in the grand scheme of things, none of that is relevant. In the grand scheme of things, only one thing is really truly relevant, and that is how you respond to the gospel of Jesus. Do you do you respond by persisting in rebellion and rejection and thereby experience separation and judgment and wrath? Or do you respond with repentance and faith and thereby experience salvation and mercy and eternal life? So sure, by all means, we want to be a church that is relevant. We care a lot about being relevant. But the key is, we care about what is really relevant. And not just what people happen to think is relevant at any given moment. And what's really relevant is how we respond to Jesus and whether we will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus or in hell separated from Jesus. So you've got the, the narrow door, you go through it, that goes to uh, reconciliation with God and spending eternity with him. And then the wide door that many go through that goes to separation from God. And here's an interesting uh, detail that Jesus also adds in verse 29. And people will come from east and west and from north and south, and they will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. This would have been massive 
to, to the people here. This would have been profoundly scandalous to the people that were listening to Jesus. Jesus had just finished saying that all of these hot shots and big wigs that think that they're getting into the kingdom of heaven, you're not getting in. The door is going to be closed in your face and you'll be stuck outside, which that in and of itself is upsetting enough. That is scandalous enough, right? But then Jesus goes one further and he says, not only will the religious elites from Israel not make it into the heaven, look who will. People from all over the place, people from outside of the borders of the nation of Israel, people from, from the north, that's Babylon, people from the south, that's Egypt, people from the east, that's all these uh, countries on the Mediterranean Sea, Crete, and Asia Minor, and Macedonia, people from the west, that's Persia, right, that's, that's modern day Iraq and Iran, right, you know what all those, all those people have in common, the people from the north and the south and the east and the west to Jesus' hearers? None of them love God. None of them worship God. None of them are faithful to God. None of them are religious or righteous, right? They're, they're polytheists. They're worshiping any number of gods that they invented. They're worshiping the sun and, and rain. They're, 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 uh, they have all kinds of bizarre religious practices like temple prostitution. They would engage in sexual immorality in the hopes that it would prompt the gods to smile on them and bless them. They did uh, like violent things, child sacrifice. They, they were enemies of God. They were enemies of the people of God. And Jesus says, those people that you think are the enemies of God, those people are going to get into the kingdom of heaven and you are not. So you can... You can talk all day long about your resume and your degrees and your accomplishments and all of the religious things that you've done. It's not going to amount to anything. You know who's going to walk right past you on their way into the kingdom of God? Sinners. Thieves. Gluttons. Drunkards. Prostitutes. The worst kinds of people from the worst places that you can imagine. They are going to be enjoying eternal life with God under the rule of God in the kingdom of God. And you will not. In other words, verse 30. Behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. The entire economy of God's kingdom is, is upside down from the economy that you know, from the economy that you're used to, from the economy that you trade in, right? In the kingdom of God, religious feats and religious accomplishments, right? None of those have any value. You know what's valuable in the kingdom of God? Spiritual bankruptcy, right? No matter how good you are, no matter how moral you are, no matter how impressive of a life that you have lived, Right? That's not the currency in the kingdom of God. Right? It's, it's not a matter of how good you are. It's a matter of how little you realize that you have. How poor and undeserving you acknowledge that you are. How deep and profound you admit that your need for a savior is. And because of that, because of the upside down nature of the kingdom of God... The best and the brightest and the most righteous and the most impressive, right? They're, they're going to be excluded because they are so good that they can't possibly fathom admitting that they need anything from anyone. While at the same time, the worst sinners that there are can be included. In fact, they're on the fast track to being included. They have the inside route to the kingdom of God because they're, they're so bad that they can't possibly fathom 
being good enough on their own, right? They're more likely to turn to a savior and to look to him to save them since they recognize that they cannot save themselves. The last will be first. Meaning the worst of sinners who trust in Christ will be welcomed into the inner circle of his glorious presence. And the first will be last. Meaning the self-righteous, prideful Pharisee will be left out to experience God's wrath for all of eternity. The door to destruction is wide. It's the door of self. Many go through it because we all instinctively love ourselves. We all instinctively look out for ourselves more than anything else. But the door to salvation and to eternal life is narrow, right? It's the door of self-denial, the door of repentance and faith, and very few go through it. In fact, so few go through it, we are so unlikely to go through it, That the only way that we can go through it is for the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and to regenerate us, to give us new desires and a new nature and a new ability to love God and to trust God more than we love ourselves and more than we trust ourselves. And God is calling us right now to walk through that narrow door. God is calling us to turn from our sin, to turn from ourselves, and to trust in Him. God is calling us to humbly trust in Christ, knowing that we are, we are the last, we are the worst of sinners, but also knowing that Jesus is able to save even the worst of sinners. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that you save the worst of sinners and bring them into your glorious uh, presence. We pray that we, your people, could enter through the narrow door of self-denial and repentance and faith. We pray, Lord, that we could enjoy your presence, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who you are and because of what you have done for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.